This is the State of Things. I'm Frank Stacio, soon to retire from this show, and I'm spending my last few days in this role listening back to some of the more memorable conversations from the last 15 years. Today, we listen again to my conversation with Melinda Maynard Lowry. From a young age, she often fielded the question, what are you? She's a Lumbee Indian whose family goes back more than 10 generations in Robeson County. As an adult, she channeled that question into her work. Her first documentary film explored what constitutes a so-called real Indian and who gets to decide. Melinda is now a professor of history at UNC and director of the Center for the Study of the American South. As I look back over my work as host of The State of Things, my conversation with her in 2016 stands out for the way it explores the complexity of Native identity in a land where white supremacy has acted to erase or distort indigenous stories. I asked Melinda to tell us about her family history. Both sides of my family, my parents, mother and father, are Lumbee Indians from the Pembroke area, right outside Pembroke. And when we think about our family history, we know our the names of our ancestors going back about 10 generations or so. And then before that, of course, we know that our their ancestors were from that area and from the all of Piedmont and eastern North Carolina and South Carolina. So... When I think about family history, it's it really unfolds right here attached to the land. And um, my parents grew up in that community, were nurtured there, and made a decision to raise their children elsewhere for, you know, specific reasons. Raised their children elsewhere, and they both had, uh, uh, both had professional opportunities outside Robeson County, got their master's degree, uh, but decided to have you back in, in Lumberton. Yeah, my dad and mom um, were living here in Durham when I was born in 1972, but they made the decision to have me born in in uh, the county hospital in Lumberton, uh, the county seat of Robeson. And that my dad always said that that was because he wanted everyone in the Lumbee community to know that I was born in Robeson County, even if I was raised elsewhere, that that was a distinction that kind of meant something to him at least. And he wanted me to always identify, no matter where I was or who I was with or what I was doing, as a Lumbee person. And so having me born there was, to him, the kind of shortcut, the shortest route Mm -hmm. to making sure that I I held that strong identification through my life. And um, I think about what an inconvenience it must have been for my mom Mm -hmm. being pregnant um, and rolling down there for OBGYN appointments and then eventually, of course, moving in with my grandfather, my father's father, for the weeks before I was born. But it's interesting because, again, they had uh, they had professional careers elsewhere, so they were sort of living outside the community and helped you navigate that world as well. It wasn't as though you were going to be brought up only with Native cultural values. Right, absolutely. I mean, they were professors at North Carolina Central University in Durham, and um, by virtue of that professional affiliation, we had a social life that encompassed every part of the Durham community and then nationally by way of they they both received doctor degrees from Duke so anybody who was in the Duke orbit wound up in my parents orbit as well as NCCU our church St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in Durham was another source of social and cultural education and at the same time my parents were constantly trying to reinforce for us that we lived in multiple worlds and we needed to be competent in all those worlds. So um, we we had friends who were 
experts in jazz music and photography and history and every aspect in classical music. Every We played violin from the age of six onwards, so I grew up reading music and playing and singing classical music. Um, but making sure that every aspect of Western civilization or African-American culture or what was right here in North Carolina that we understood alongside our Lumbee culture. And so my, my mom sometimes uses the word that we were assimilated, but I actually think we were more mainstreamed hmm. than assimilated. It's not like we turned over ourselves to this kind of other yeah. non-Lumbee way of being, but we they just made sure that we were competent in, in everything. So that that's what's happening with you and in your mind, this, this competence in two cultures, but how are you being perceived as a young child growing up here in Durham as a Lumbee Indian? Yeah, well, that was funny because it's so different from my daughter now raising, she's nine, raising her um, here and, and noticing the, the kind of comments and, and identity questions that she has. For me, we never really stood out as different in, until somebody asked us about it. And because this North Carolina was a somewhat different place 40 years ago than it is now, there were a lot fewer folks from outside the state who lived yeah. here. And as Southerners, mm-hmm. it's not that common to get, run around asking people about their race. You know, the what are you question was not something I seriously encountered until I moved to the Northeast for college, which has a different set of cultural mm, expectations. Right, right. But in the South, you know, it's it's impolite to ask somebody about your race. So the few um, encounters I had with that question were really sort of innocent, um, innocent portrayals of of native american stereotypes so when my when i was a kindergartner i remember a little girl at the lunch counter asking me what i was and i told her i was american indian i was a lumbee and she didn't believe me and so i told her that i was born in a teepee which i knew (laughs) was perfectly untrue completely not true but I thought that she would believe that because even at that young age we all had an understanding of the stereotype of a native person and, um, you know, I was born in a hospital in, Lo- in Robinson County. Right. I wasn't born in a TV. Not a TV. Uh, church also. You mentioned the church, but that played an important part. And your parents were very clear about wanting to raise you with a religious background. Yes. Well, you know, the Lumbee people have been Christians for as long as any other Southerners anywhere have been Christians. So hundreds of years. And so my parents were both raised in um, Christian households, Baptist and Methodist. When they moved to Durham, they found that the Episcopal Church offered them the kind of um, grounding in scripture that they wanted to fulfill Mm. their spiritual lives. And for us, them valuing words and education and critical thought the way that they did, the engagement with scripture was really important for them to be able to teach their kids what it meant to be Christian. So that's the way that, that they chose, rather than a kind of charismatic or fundamentalist approach to religion, they looked much more at the Bible and um, looked to the Episcopal Church's liturgy for that type of guidance. Um, but still, my dad in particular would always tie passages, passages of Scripture back to our Lumbee hmm. identity and history. So whenever we were learning about Exodus and Moses and the flight of the Hebrews from Israel, I'm sorry, from Egypt, he reminded us of how the Lumbees were are a chosen people the same way that God believed the Israelites were a chosen people. 
And even at like, I mean, he was telling us this when we were in elementary school. I had no context for that whatsoever. But it stuck with us, and it was one of those sort of identity markers that wasn't meant to elevate our egos above, yeah. make us more special than anyone else, but it was a, a reminder that we had a responsibility to live according to the expectations of our parents, of our faith, of our larger Lumbee community, and look, it had this grounding in ancient, ancient world history at the same time. So you're talking about religion. This is interesting. I want to talk more about this because, you know, when we think about Christianity and Native peoples, there is also a way in which Christianity has been quite destructive of Native culture, uh, creating schools run by uh, orders of Catholic priests that mm-hmm. were determined to to take away Native culture. Was that any part of the discussion at all? Well, um, the reason I made my second film, Sounds of Faith, in 1997, I think when that film was finished, um, was sort of prompted by that question. So after I left home, I began to, of course, encounter other Native people who were not Christians, but more non-Natives who were hostile to the idea that you could be both Christian and Native because of the history that you're referring to. That's what they understood, that kind of oppositional conflict, rather than the sort of use of Christianity as a survival mechanism, which is how Lumbees had used it for so many centuries. So I decided to make a film about it because I thought, well, I, you know, I need to understand this better so I can answer the question. And then maybe there's a way for other people to grasp that Native folks are not stuck in some kind of rut spiritually or alienated from the folks around us, that we are adaptable and we change and, and that religious change in particular is one of our key sources of survival. Um, so that film, I I filmed at a powwow in Robinson County. I filmed at my my grandparents' Thanksgiving celebration, which is always a big moment for us as a family. Um, and I and I asked people. I interviewed my my uncle, who's a a preacher, as well as my cousin, who his son, who is um, very devout and and also is sort of foundational in powwow singing in the Lumbee community. And so, again, the purpose was to look at those two things as apparent opposites. I mean, there's nothing that's actually in conflict, but my point was, let's look at what unifies these expressions. That's Melinda Maynard Lowry. She's a filmmaker and professor of history at UNC Chapel Hill. We'll continue our conversation with her just ahead. Please stay with us. This conversation aired originally in December of 2016 and continues on the State of Things from North Carolina Public Radio, a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. This is the State of Things broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District. I'm Frank Stacio. My guest is Melinda Maynard Lowry. She's a filmmaker and history professor at UNC Chapel Hill and director of the Center for the Study of the American South. This conversation from four years ago is among the shows I chose to replay before I go because of the many ways it shines a light on the history of the place where we live, a history that began long before anyone called it North Carolina. And for Melinda, that past was tightly bound up with her own personal story. Before the break, we were talking about her early years. She grew up with siblings and a half-sibling, but then discovered in high school that she had another brother. And I asked her to tell us that story. Yeah, before my parents were married, they had a child that they decided they were not able to raise. And it's a long, long story there, but... The upshot of it was that my mother moved to Georgia to have him and gave him up for adoption without telling anyone except my father and one close friend of hers. So no one in our family knew 
about this baby until I was 18, until I was a senior in high school. And um, one sort of spring day, <laughs> I found out that I had a brother that I didn't know about. And um, the way that unfolded was my my brother, Dane, who, who was raised in Georgia by an adopted family, uh, knew that he was Lumbee. They had told him that he was Lumbee. But uh, when the adoption records were unsealed, there were a few details, not names, but physical descriptions and occupations and things like that in the, in the records. And he knew from those records that his father was a Lumbee Indian who was a college professor with gold eyes. And my father had these particular, peculiar sort of light brown, goldish, greenish eyes. And so um, in, in, a, in a very essential, wonderful Lumbee fashion, my brother intuited to call the tribal enrollment office and talk to the director of tribal enrollment and say, this is his story. This is who he's looking for. Would she have any leads? And, of course, how many college professors with gold eyes for Olympia are there going to be? Well, there's one. And she knew exactly who he was talking about. And so she handled it extremely professionally and, and delicately, sensitively, left a message for my father and explained to him the situation. And then literally, I think four days later, we were meeting my brother. Um, what was that meeting like? It was unbelievable. I mean, he looks exactly like us. You know, he had been raised, as I said, in Georgia with a in a not in a Lumbee community, but in a in a family that valued education and had high expectations for achievement, the same way that ours did. And so he was on the cusp of going to Cornell for a PhD in engineering at the time that we met him, and uh, I was on the cusp of starting undergraduate at Harvard, and my younger brother was trying to figure out what he was going to do for college. Anyway, there was just this kind of amazing reunion when you don't, it's one of those feelings when you don't know what's missing in your life, mm. and then you discover discover it when you didn't even know it was missing. Uh, it was just a huge reminder of, of one, the kind of the unity that kinship brings our Lumbee people. Um, over across time and space and pain and suffering. And the decision that my mom made in particular must have been one of the hardest decisions that anybody has to make. I know that I would not have been able to make the decision to give up my daughter, even if I thought it would have been better for her. It would have been impossible for me to not raise my own mm. child. And my brother Dane c credits my mom for making that difficult decision yeah. Um, and giving him a life that he could thrive in. And then, of course, we're just, we praise God for his ability and recognition of who he was, his Lumbee community, to come back and use that as a vehicle yeah. to come back to us. Um, so that was, you know, how long ago was that? That was a really long time ago, 26 years ago. And um, we've had a wonderful relationship with him ever since and and with his family yeah so. I mean and, and I like that in that embedded in that story is the fact that that network was so well stitched together the network of love that that putting everything back together was not very hard even though all of these forces had had moved you right so many all miles of these away. forces had moved us away from each other yeah. but it was the Lumbee community yeah. and value of kinship that brought us back together so you talked about uh, applying for college you got into Harvard but that application process brought up some interesting questions about your native identity for you yeah so you know when I think about 
about, again, not being confronted a lot in Durham about being native or being different, um, in the late 80s and early 90s, affirmative action was a really hot issue. You know, people were not decided about how they felt about that. And um, I think the idea that I was I would go to some place that uh, like like Harvard or an Ivy League school that I imagined was above my rank. <laughs> my parents didn't see it that way. They felt like, no, this is where you belong, and this is where you know you should what what you should strive for at least. Uh, at the same time, um, the there was a lot of messages in mainstream society that people like me didn't deserve to be there unless mm. we were more qualified than the other folks that had typically been accepted to those places. So there was a certain amount of surprise, I think, in my um, among my peers, or more like my peers' parents, that um, our family was going to be going to that level for college. And I remember my mother telling me many years later, because I think she didn't want me to feel self-conscious at the time, but she told me many years later that another mother had said to her, isn't Melinda's father some kind of ethnic something, you know, and this sort of sense of disbelief yeah. about what, what my college choice choices were going to be? And that that ethnic something phrase is such a reminder of how we have struggled as a society to understand that um, affirmative action and programs like that really just provide an equal playing field. Right. They don't give an advantage to anybody who doesn't deserve it. What they do is they make the playing field level. But they remove been, the obstacles from people who had deserved it for generations. Yeah, right? they've you know the obstacles have been so high for people uh, like my grandparents, and, mm. and I'm actually the granddaughter of a college graduate, which is an unusual thing in the Lumbee community or any Native community. But he was, um, he was a pioneer for his time, and he really set the tone for my father, for his whole family, that this is what you do, even though the obstacles are high. So affirmative action or things like that for me at the time were just a way of making the, the playing field fair. That's how it works. But I wonder, psychologically for you, when you hear these kind of undermining statements, and I'm sure perhaps encountered some of this, oh, you're here because you're Lumbee. I get it. That's why you got into Harvard. Yeah, yeah. Is there yeah. a sense that you want to walk away from that identity and, and sort of prove, no, I, I deserve to be here, and therefore I'm not going to stress my cultural heritage? Um, not a conscious sense, no. I mean, again, my parents did such a good job mm. of making sure that we were competent in every area of mainstream American life that if there was some part of some social or cultural political experience that I wanted to participate in, I think I felt prepared to do it, whether it was kind of Lumbee-specific or Native-specific. Um, I, I felt okay venturing into that. So when I was in college, I sang in the women's chorus, and I wasn't very involved in the Native American Student Association. It was small at the time, and mm. I, I knew some of those folks, but I wasn't active in that in that um, group, not because I was sort of sublimating my lumbiness so much as that I was interested in exploring all these other things that were available. Well, but you did explore that a little bit again in the application process when, you know, you have a box to check. You channeled some of that into your college application essay, didn't you? Yeah. Well, again, as you get to be on junior, senior in high school, you start to think about what makes you different from the people around you because that's what colleges are looking for even now you know 
they they need to know how the applicant distinguishes themselves. And to me, it wasn't checking Lumbee or checking Native American was not a, it wasn't merely a box. It was a transformative aspect of my personality and my cultural experience. So I knew I needed to talk about it. And in the essay, and also I'm sure in my college interview, I spoke about about being Lumbee. And in particular, the, the example that I used in the essay was of a cousin of mine who had gotten pregnant when she was a teenager. And again, we're talking about the late 80s, early 90s here, when teen pregnancy was a hot button issue, just like affirmative action was. And so I felt that teen pregnancy, in a way, was something that um, most people in my social circle here in Durham could not relate to. They didn't know another teenager who was pregnant. Mm -hmm. But I did, by virtue of my membership belonging in my Lumbee family. And so being able to sort of talk to talk about those choices or what why I decided not to go that way, for example, was something that um, seemed right to me to talk about. It didn't really occur to me that that was a Lumbee thing at the time. Mm. But um, looking back on it, I guess, yeah, it has some, it has definitely a cultural resonance. You got interested in history. And, and in particular, I understand there was uh, one assignment that really piqued your interest. In yeah, I didn't. I went to college thinking I was going to be an English major because I love to read. But then college level English is not about that. <laughs> it's about other things. And so it, there was a history class that I took when I was a freshman that asked us to look at a particular incident. I think it was a lynching using newspaper articles that told completely different stories about the same incident. And I it was at that point that it occurred to me that the narrative I knew about U.S. history was very one-sided um, and that really if I was going to understand anything about the, the society I was living in, I needed more perspectives. And in particular, there was the Lumbee perspective right there. And I had never quite looked at it as having a relationship to U.S. history that was sort of so oppositional. But then I began to think about different perspectives on a single event, how, how radically different they could be. And I realized that the Lumbee perspective on U.S. history is quite different than the narrative we, we've come to know. And that exploring that, not just for myself, but for other folks who wanted to know more about U.S. history you know, might be a useful way to contribute. Is that when you decided to uh, uh, look at filmmaking as a way to express some of those challenges? It was related, yeah. So filmmaking came to me through wanting to get out of the dining hall as a job. And when I was in college, I didn't <laughs> want to work in the dining hall anymore. And so I started looking at internships, you know, and different types of employment opportunities. And um, I was fortunate enough to to meet a uh, filmmaker named Paul Steckler who hired me as a research assistant for a film that he was working on on Wampanoag Indians on Martha's Vineyard. And um, their story is has some parallels with the Lumbee story. And I just sort of began to occur to me that filmmaking was another way to speak to different perspectives and reach a larger audience than... Um, than academic history by itself. Well, tell about, talk about your first film. You talked a little bit about the film that uh, looks at this, this intersection of Christianity and Native culture. talked about that earlier. The first film, I think, was Real Indian, right? Right. It's called Real Indian. So tell us about that. What... Um, well, I, I um, decided to go to Stanford to their master's in documentary film program. 
and one of the requirements there is that you make a film every quarter and uh so the trying to decide what I was going to make a film about was in a hurry was an incredible challenge and I was sitting around with my classmates at lunch one day and I started telling them about this what are you question that I'd started mm-hmm. getting especially when I went to college um cuz phenotypically you know I don't match the physical features of what people imagine American Indians to be like and I don't fit a particular category for most folks so that's where that question usually comes from and they thought that question was fascinating and worth worthy of a film subject and I I thought oh huh well how would I go about doing that so you know rather than make a film about somebody else going through that <laughs> struggle i decided to kind of turn the camera on myself and also interview some folks who uh who were native who had similar experiences or who had various perspectives on that issue and um it turned into a 7 minute documentary and premiered at the Sundance Film Festival a year later i think in 1997 um and it's, this is this is extraordinary in itself because this is essentially a, a sort of a college project, right? I it mean, was this master's is degree, a master's project, project yeah. that ends mm-hmm. up screening at Sundance. Yeah, yeah, okay. and and that was a that was a kind of um, experimental time for the for the Sundance Institute when they they have a very strong program now in native with native filmmakers, mm-hmm. native filmmaking. Um, but at the time, those were the early years when they were accepting a lot of work by total unknowns. <laughs> People like me that had absolutely no kind of profile in professional the professional film world. Uh, so that was an extraordinary opportunity for me to kind of open up uh, relationships with an, an art form that I, I mean, I had seen it as a storytelling vehicle, but I hadn't really appreciated how film was an art form until I began to meet other Native filmmakers at Sundance and understand the, the tribal perspectives that they were coming from and and their own stories. So, yeah, it was a huge opportunity. I am talking with Melinda Maynard-Lowry today on The State of Things. Filmmaker and a scholar, historian at uh, UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, Later you worked on a film called The Light of Reverence. Tell us about that one. Uh, Well, so um, In the Light of Reverence was a film that focused on Native American sacred places. And it actually started, it was a decade-long project that I came to in the last two or three years of it. The producer-director was a Toby McLeod, who was based in the Bay Area, Northern California, and he was looking for some quali- you know, some help and on, on the producing side when I graduated from Stanford, and he and I met, and it, I was a good fit for that project, and then helped him bring it to completion in 2001 when it showed on PBS. So tell us about the premise of this film. So the the premise was to explore why um, Native American sacred places are not routinely protected as a matter of constitutional law and policy. And so we focused on three different communities. The uh, Sioux communities that surround Devil's Tower in Wyoming and, and see that as a sacred place the Hopi community in the southwest and the Four Corners area, and then the Winnemum Wintu tribe in Northern California, and the site we focused on there mostly was Mount Shasta. And so at each of these three places, there are different types of conflicts over sacred sacred sites. One is recreational climbing, Devil's Tower at Mount Shasta, it's skiing and New Age religious activity. 
And then in the Four Corners area, the threats are from mining, for the most part, gravel, pumice, and then coal at Black Mesa. Um, and so the the goal of the film was to really expose Americans to native points of view, contemporary native points of view on these questions, and to not allow the discussion to remain in the past as if these were religions that are dead now and that these are places that no one values, so they're ex they're expendable now, but really to bring Native people in conversation, if not direct conversation, we do have some direct conversation, but in conversation in the same film with folks who are miners, with folks who are ranchers, with folks who are recreational climbers, who have their own ideas about sacred land, but whose ideas about sacred land in, do involve the extraction or use of materials and, and spiritual ideas that run totally counter to what Native people have valued well, I, there. I think that's, I'm going to take a break now. We want to come back and talk more about that and, of course, uh, how this bears on the recent news at Standing Rock and months-long demonstration there. Um, questions not only, as you talked about, this kind of Rashomon effect of different points of view and how you might feel about American history if you're Native versus European, but also the very different ideology and, and uh, that we take for granted uh, as European-Americans that governs this continent that was not always governing, and it, it appears to be uh, a lot of impetus now among many voters, if we can take a look at Bernie Sanders' support, to take a new look at this idea about ownership and land and, and stewardship property. and responsibility. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk more about that when my conversation with Melinda Maynard Lowry continues on the state of things, and that conversation continues in a moment. Stay tuned. This is The State of Things. I'm Frank Show, talking with Melinda Maynard Lowry, a historian and a filmmaker who has dedicated her life to exploring Lumbee history and identity. I wanted to replay this show in my final weeks here because I think it's the kind of conversation we like to have on The State of Things. To me, it clearly shows the nuance and complexity of our history and the ways in which personal and ethnic identity are at once fluid and crystalline. And just a note here, I spoke with Melinda in December of 2016, and that was just a couple of months after an important court ruling on the Dakota Access Pipeline in light of the protest at Standing Rock. Before the break, we were talking about Melinda's film, In the Light of Reverence. It's a film that explores spiritual ideas about what is considered sacred land in Native cultures. I asked Melinda to set up a clip from the film. This is uh, Vine Deloria Jr., who is an extremely well-known um, scholar, author of a book called Custer Died for Your Sins, as well as many other books um, about Native religion, about the role of, of um, Western European civilization in dismantling what we have known to uh, value as the natural world. And um, in particular, he's an expert on law and policy. So he was an invaluable voice for this film. The attitude of our species is that this whole thing was created for us. It has no value except how we use it. The basic problems in American society is a rights society, not a responsibility society. What you got is each individual saying, well, I have a right to do this. Having religious places and revolving your religion around that means that you are always in contact with the earth, you're responsible for it and to it. 
That is a clip from the film In the Light of Reverence, and I'm here with associate filmmaker Melinda Mader-Lowry, who also teaches history at the UN, at UNC Chapel Hill. You know, it's, it's particularly relevant and interesting that I'm talking to you today in light of what's happening at Standing Rock, North Dakota, because it seems to me that that's precisely what he's talking about. It is, rights versus responsibilities. Yeah. I mean, there's so many ways to unpack that story about Standing Rock and what's gone wrong and how we got to this point, but I think... Um, the spirit of the water protectors has been to honor the voices of their elders who for thousands of years have been saying what Vine said in that clip, which is that um, as humanity needs its connection to the earth and and that has to be stewarded actively, if it's not, then um, not only does the earth diminish, but we as human beings diminish. It's not created for us. It's we, we are here to take care of it. Um, and the United States has has um, constructed its property values, its legal system around rights rather than responsibilities. Um, so Energy Transfer Partners makes this kind of progress with building the Dakota Access Pipeline because it believes it has a right to do so. It doesn't believe in the U.S., the United States' own laws that require the United States federal government to act in trust and in negotiation with sovereign native communities, um, such as the Standing Rock Sioux. So the fact that Energy Transfer Partners completely rejects the legal logic of its of the nation to which it belongs is really kind of shocking and depressing and also demonstrates how far away we've gotten from the core principles that Vine articulated in our in our film. Well, and also, it seems to me that the decision that was made by the Army Corps is ultimately a policy decision, and the legal challenges have yet to be made, and I'm sure that going down the line there will be plenty of them around this, because as you say, the investors in the pipeline have said that, that the government caved into narrow, narrow political interests, but I'm wondering if that's true, and if you see the interest in clean water and environmental protection as broadening beyond beyond the Sioux Nation. and the- Well, yeah, of course it does. I mean, every citizen of the United States, of which Native Americans are included as citizens, has the right to clean water and to a safe uh, environment and a safe water supply. That's uh, energy transfer partners might dispute whether their project is a, is a danger to that right. But there's another issue along that's important here. And there is the reason for this enormous gathering at the camp in South Dakota, sorry, North Dakota, um, which is that Native people and Native communities are not political constituencies. They're sovereign nations that have, that pre-exist the United States, and the United States Constitution affirms the federal government's legal responsibility to negotiate with those sovereign entities. So the folks that are gathered there as water protectors are not a narrow political constituency. The The political constituents are the oil companies uh, and who wish the federal government to serve their narrow interests rather than rather than have the U.S. fulfill its constitutional obligations to Native tribes. I want to talk a little bit more about you and your personal life and talk about your late husband, Willie French Lowry, mm-hmm. and your relationship with him. No, yeah, Tell he us was, about Willie. He was amazing. So he and I met when I, after I returned to North Carolina in 2000 to pursue a PhD in history at UNC. Um, of course, my chosen topic was Lumbee history, and I had known who Willie was since I was probably six years old. I mean, Willie 
was a legend in the Lumbee community. And he was a musician who wrote the album Proud to be a Lumbee, which became our kind of national anthem. It was something that as kids we all knew to sing and knew all the words. Um, he also wrote the music for an outdoor drama called Strike at the Wind, which tells a really important part of Lumbee history. And um, so as a national treasure, it was <laughs> it was a privilege and an honor to have him have a relationship with him and also to have him as a kind of a mentor in a way. I mean, he taught me so much about how to be a professional person because he had had so many years, decades of fighting those obstacles that we were talking about earlier. Willie didn't fight them in the educational realm, but fought them in the entertainment realm. And, um, you know, he used to to kind of build up my sense of self-esteem and counter my self-doubt by reminding me that when they were sleeping, I was working. And, uh, well, and he had quite a, I mean, quite a career, apart from being a legend within the community. Absolutely. He certainly uh, was known professionally. Yeah, so as a, as a rock musician, as a guitarist and a singer, he, he rode the wave of psychedelic rock music in the 1960s and 70s. And... Um, the record label Paradise of Bachelors has re-released his very first album with the band called Plant and Sea. And um, that that album in particular is a testament to, to Willie's genius, but also the genius of people that, um, that shared his vision. And um, in particular, his, his wife, Carol Lowry, was, you know, a phenomenal influence on him musically and on their children. They have three boys who are professional musicians. And Willie's legacy um, is, yeah, goes way beyond the Lumbee community into every aspect of American popular culture. Tell us about restaging Strike at the Wind. You told us about that. Yeah, so um, shortly after Willie and I met, Strike at the Wind began to fall on hard times. The nonprofit organization that produced it was it was difficult for it to continue. I think Willie looked at my skill set and imagined that I would be the person <laughs> to bring some of that forward again. And so we made every attempt and for we produced the play for two years and raised funds around it for uh, four years renovated the amphitheater that it was that it was uh, produced in. We did a lot to try to raise awareness across the state and the East Coast about the existence of this play. So um, it was a phenomenal experience working in the weather with 70 or 80 people who um, are all, who all had a deep sense of ownership over the play. Because it wasn't just Willie's play, or wasn't. But what's the story that? It tells so the story it tells is um, about the Lumbee community during and after the Civil War, when we a particular man, Henry Barry Lowry, uh, decide and his family and his his kin decided to basically rebel against the white supremacy movement that was emerging in North Carolina after the defeat of the Confederacy. And it was a multiracial, Henry Berry's movement was a multiracial movement. And the Strike at the Wind play really highlights those aspects of multiracial unity that went into Henry Berry's successful uh, rebellion against against white supremacy. Um, and so the music that Willie wrote for the play is kind of driven by the land. It's driven by the kind of musical traditions that he grew up with as well as by the story itself. And so it resonates across time and space 
because of, of how integrated it is with the story and with the people. So folks have this sense of ownership because they really do they really do own it. They may not own the intellectual property or the copyright to it, but the Lumbee community owns that play. Yeah, and it's this piece of history that we're not going to know otherwise. Because that's, that's right. Because not, that's not in the telling in the master narrative. That's right. Um, so you became pregnant with your daughter, Lydia, when you were in Boston, but decided, like your parents, to have her in Lumberton. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it worked out for the benefit of Strike of the Wind, too. So we were producing Strike of the Wind the summer that I was pregnant with her, and I knew that given once I became aware of the timing that I was going to be in Robinson County when she was born because of, because we were working on that play and trying to – our last – the end of the season was, was going to correspond with the time that she was born. Well, it just so happens that she was born on the last night of the – last perform of the last weekend of the performance. So I was in the hospital uh, <laughs> and giving birth to her when when Strike at the Wind had its last performance. But um, having Lydia was there was also more than a logistical decision. It really echoed my parents drive mm. to make sure that she was set up to n- understand the ways in which she belonged to the Lumbee community, even though she might she might never live there uh, on a permanent basis that that she would always know that she belonged in a particular way. Well, you had Parkinson's when you met, and um, things deteriorated, I think, more quickly than you expected when you were involved. Yeah, well, you know, when you're when you are dealing with anyone who has a chronic disease and then you're married to that person, you're you're in denial mm-hmm. about how quickly they're declining because Parkinson's and he developed dementia as part of the uh, manifestation of his Parkinson's. Parkinson's and dementia require intense care, and you're not doing that care so that the person will die. You're doing that care so that the person will live and thrive. But in the end, that's not up to you. And so by the time we decided to have Lydia, I was not aware really of the nature of his decline or how quickly it would occur after that. But I saw the decision to have a child as something that of course, I I wanted, but also that he could contribute to because he was he was not working at the time, he and he was cognitively he was present enough to her to be a wonderful father to her and be a wonderful influence on her, and so while it was a really difficult and strange thing to care for uh, an older husband who was chronically ill and and a young young baby at the same time. Um, I also feel very grateful because they got to develop such a close relationship that many parents and children, even you know, under the most sort of typical circumstances, don't get to develop. And so Lydia looks just like Willie, but she also has inherited a lot of Willie's um, performance tendencies and his ability to bring people together. Um, she loves to reach out and entertain and make people feel good, and that's who he was, too. I am talking with Melinda Maynard-Lowry, a history professor at UNC, and I'm talking to her on the state of things. You talked about her abilities as a performer. Willie passed away in 2012, um, and there was, a, there was a moving moment that happened uh, at the funeral. Yeah, at his wake. So Willie being the Lumbee legend that he was, we expected a large crowd at his wake, and we were very gratified to have probably 400 people there. Um, And at one point, um, one of the speakers at the wake called for the group to sing Proud to be a Lumbee and called it our national anthem. And everybody, of course, knew the song. And I 
you know, turned to find Lydia. She was bouncing around between relative to relative. She was very unburdened, you know, and uh, she was, she, of course, understood that her father was dead because his body was lying right there in front of the church in the casket. She's how old? She's four. Mm -hmm. And so she, um, so she she knew what was going on, but you know was only processing it to the extent that she absolutely had to. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, when he called for the song to be sung, I looked for her because I wanted to sing it with her. But then I heard her voice on the loudspeaker, and I thought, we don't have a recording of Lydia singing Proud to be a Lumbee. Well, then I turned around, and my cousin, who is a county commissioner, was holding her up on the podium, standing on the podium at the front of the church, and she held the microphone in her hand, just like her daddy would have, and led the entire crowd in that song. And, of course, everybody just wept. And um, my brother Dane likes to say that he thought he saw Willie smile. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, because, again, it was it was coming sort of full circle uh, with his legacy renewed in her and I think one of the one of the themes of Lumbee history that I'm exploring in my current work is survival and then and renewal, so death and rebirth as an ongoing and continuous process. And and that night, of course, at the time I had a very different emotional reaction to it, but now I, I can look at it as as one of many treasured examples of how the Lumbee people deal with death. We sing through our tears. We will hear a clip of that song. In fact, we'll go out on that on that clip in a moment. But I do have one more question for you, and it's, it's along those lines. Um, Lauren, you talked about gratitude in a moment of grief. Uh, and again, we're experiencing great moments of grief and anxiety in this country now as we look ahead to a very uncertain and perhaps dangerous future. Talk about that, that sort of having to gather yourself um, and and in a in a spirit of gratitude and humility. Yeah, I mean, I think you know um, when I lost Willie, there's no category for not not much of a social category for young widows with young children in our society, and so I I turned around many many times and in a very lost fashion about who I was and how I was supposed to spend my time and what I was supposed to do. And the way the Lord works in my life is to bring people into it that um, show me the way through their own example. And so one of those folks has been my partner, Grayson, who is now living with us here in Durham and is Lydia's stepdad. And and Grayson's life and example, he's also Lumbee, has been to really point to being grateful for what we have and, and being in this moment. Melinda Maynard-Lowry is a filmmaker and a history professor at UNC Chapel Hill. She's also director of the Center for the Study of the American South. This conversation aired originally in December of 2016. You can catch more of these conversations from the State of Things every Tuesday and Thursday at noon through the end of the year. North Carolina Public Radio is a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. I'm Frank Stacio.